This is from the show Local Case 43. Lucian's Arising and Vanishing. The introduction. One touch of the elixir of life turns iron into gold. One word of the ultimate principle transforms an ordinary person into a sage. If you know that gold and iron are not two, that ordinary and sage are fundamentally the same, then after all, you'll have no use for it. The case. Lucian asked Yanto, when arising and vanishing go on unceasingly, what then? Yanto shouted and said, whose arising and vanishing is it? The verse, severing old entangling vines, opening up a fox lair. A leopard covers itself with fog to change its spots. A dragon rides the thunder to change its bones. Bah! Arising and vanishing in profusion. What is it? So today we are stepping into a three months long journey of Angor. And in the, as in the case of any journey, there's often a mixture of trepidations and excitement. Am I taking on too much by venturing into this? What will I encounter along the way? And how will I know that I am able to handle and cope with what comes. Such thoughts and feelings are quite natural when we are about to step into an unknown journey. But if we don't know how to accept and work with them, they can become a heavy load that will burden the trip and will make traveling a lot more cumbersome. So how do we pack light when embarking on a journey of an ungo? Dogen's teacher wrote a verse to express the correct way to enter ungo, or what, what to pack, what not to pack. Set your bones upright upon the level ground, and to seclude yourself, scooping out a cavern in space, pass instantly beyond the gate of duality only taking with you a darkness as dark as a black lacquered pail. So what do we really need for this journey? What are we planning to rely on going forward? My early 20s, I remember embarking on a few extended trips with my girlfriend at the time and one of the trips was a seven months long backpacking journey to Asia, and the other two were two major journeys or trips were bicycle trips for about three months each. One in France or Spain, the other one in New Zealand. So these journeys were actually eye-opening on countless levels, countless ways, but one of the more profoundly or more valuable lessons came out of the fact that we had to pack very light and rely on very little. 
We had no choice. When all that is moving you is your legs, your muscles, your body, you have to watch carefully what you pack with you. And there were many times I had to improvise on the go and trust that I will find a creative way to work through whatever the challenge was. Now, while there, there were many moments of uncertainty and fear of the unknown, there was also lots of freshness and newness, which helped bring out a natural sense of adaptation. And it also raised the willingness to accept and welcome change rather than be paralyzed by it. And often when we travel, we, we may want to pack a bunch of familiar things, primarily because they give us a sense of emotional security. While they may provide some good feelings, but at the same time, they can block us from going beyond the familiar and impede on learning to trust and rely on a dynamic sense of self rather than a familiar sense of self. So stepping onto the journey of Ango is not much different. Although we create a supportive structure, essentially each of us is stepping into the unknown. And each of us need to learn to rely on a fundamental and original power. In Zen, we call this Joriki, which means inner power or spiritual power. Deriving our power from external things, however, others is called Tariki, which means other power or worldly power. And so to move away from Tariki and cultivate strong Joriki, we need to acknowledge the trepidations or trepidatious feelings and thoughts, along with the grasping hand that is always groping for the familiar. Let it all be and choose, choose to not carry any of it on our shoulders. That means not to dwell in it and not to think and talk about it, internally or externally. Instead, we can choose to trust that we have what it takes to function well within the unknown. In fact, our true self thrives in the unknown because our true self is itself unknown. And as long as we hold on to the known and derive our power from it, the unknown remains threatening, dark, and cold. As long as we resist change, impermanence remains a constant threat to our perceived existence. The large backpack we insist on carrying around consists of many familiar thoughts, concepts, and assumptions about reality. And unless we are willing to put it down, or willing to choose to put it down for a while and travel light, we cannot discover and experience Joriki, the meaning of true self-reliance, which is not an accumulative or accumulated self-reliance that's based on what I have done so far or what I have accumulated up to now, be it material or education. During Zazen, we can all agree that we often encounter a constant stream of repetitive thoughts that arise, subsist for a while, 
and vanish. And so to weaken Tariki and develop Joriki, we need to refrain from the internal maneuvering and the willing and dealing and ask, where is it all coming from? And does it really mean anything? Don't take anybody's word for, for that. Ask for yourself. Investigate on your own. Does it really mean anything? If we take it seriously, we end up living within a tormenting cave. On the other hand, ignoring, ignoring and suppressing also will not work. And it's not just thoughts and emotions that arise and vanish. Do we know, does anybody know of anything that does not arise, subsists, and disintegrates over time? Is there anything that remains? It appears that that's all there is. And this is what Lushan wrestled with when he asked Yanto, when arising and vanishing go on unceasingly, what then? Is there anything else? Lushan was a 9th century Chinese Zen master who traveled quite a bit in his early days of training and met with different teachers on his spiritual journey trying to clarify a fundamental question that often pops up in the heads of devoted and determined practitioners. When we take the time to sit and observe intently without maneuvering and without seeking displacement activities, we encounter a sense of constancy. And we personally experience that nothing stays the same, even for a brief moment. It can be very unsettling and even terrifying to see that there is nothing to hold on to. And this is a very natural stage of spiritual evolution. To seek for something within this constancy. To encounter this constancy and yet to look for something I can hold on to. So Lushan asked, when realizing that nothing is fixed, then what? Once when, tra- when studying under Shishuang, Lushan asked a similar question. When one is unable to find a place where one can go or remain, then what? Shishuang said, give it up completely. And it is said that Lushan at that time didn't penetrate this answer, this question and answer. And later he continued his travels, met Yanto and asked him the same exact question. Yanto said, Going or abiding in some other place, of what use is it? What do you plan to do with it? Upon hearing these words, it is said that Lushan had an awakening experience. Now Lushan set foot on a spiritual journey with a burning desire to find the solid ground to stand on within a constantly changing reality. And Shishuang told him in plain terms, let go of wanting to find the solid ground and you will be at peace. Very true, very much to the point. And this advice may work for some, but for Lushan, this was easier said than done 
because he was convinced that he needed a solid ground to stand on. And this was the underlying assumption that accompanied him on his journey. And Shishuang's mountain was way too steep for him at that time. And so he kept traveling and ended up posing the same question to Yanta, who dealt with it brilliantly. Instead of asking Lushan to let go of the search, he asked, what are you going to do with a solid piece of ground? Why do you think you need it? Instead of turning the attention to what we believe we need, how about asking a different question? Do I really need it? Why not surrender to the constancy and merge with it? How about that as an option? Ruyan, who also studied Adayanto, once asked, what is the fundamental constant principle? Yanto said, moving. Ruyan said, when moving, what then? Yanto said, you do not see the fundamental constant principle. Ruyan stood there thinking. Yanto looked at him and said, if you agree, you are not free of sense and matter. If you don't agree, you will be forever sunk in birth and death. Inner agreement or alignment is essential. But how do we agree? What does it mean to agree? And this is the same as merging with movement and flow. Where we are truly merged, we don't know that we are merged. When we are in a state of full agreement, we do not know that we are in agreement. As Yanto said, you do not see the fundamental constant principle. You only see it when you're outside of it. You only see a perceived goal or a perceived end to the quest when you are outside of the journey. What about you being the journey? Then what? What happens to the quest? What happens to the question? To arrive at such a state, we have to push the boundaries and go beyond the comfort we derive from what we know, what we imagine, what we think, and go beyond leaning against our emotional interpretations. It also means to go beyond the way we perceive time. We are accustomed to seeing ourselves as moving along a timeline with, with segments of hours, days, months, and years. We perceive ourselves as entities traveling within time. But are we open to the possibility that this may just be an optical illusion? Maybe. Time and being are only seen to be separated. In his fascicle titled Uji, Being Time, Dogen wrote about time in relation to two most fundamental teachings of Buddhism, Anatta, which means no fixed self, and Anika, which means impermanence. And he said, 
Since we human beings are constantly arranging bits and pieces of what we experience in order to fashion a whole universe, we must take care to look upon this welter of living beings and physical objects as sometime things. Things do not go about hindering each other's existence any more than moments in time get in each other's way. As a consequence, the intention to practice bodhicitta arises at the same time in different beings, and this same intention may also arise at different times. And the same applies to training and practice, as well as to realizing the way. In a similar way, similar manner, he says, we are continually arranging bits and pieces of what we experience in order to fashion them into what we call a self, which we treat as myself. This is the same as the principle of we ourselves are just for a time. So take a moment to look around and consider whether there is any form of being that is any world that does not or that does or does not find expression at this very moment of time? Is there anything that does not arise or co-arises? Right? Is there anything that is, that is essentially separated from anything else? By time as well. The phrase for the time being implies that time in its totality is what existence is and that existence in all its occurrences is what time is. Existence in all its occurrences, all of us, the many ways we appear, all of it is nothing but time. And because it is a time, its time will have a wondrous luminosity, a point that we will be studying and learning about during the present 24 hours. And because it is time, it will be one and the same as the present 24 hours. What Dogen says is that we are not traveling within time since we are time itself. Most logically or intellectually, this is a foreign concept for us, a foreign and threatening concept for us. And it's not how we perceive ourselves or how we perceive reality. A monk once asked Joshua, how can I practice 24 hours a day? And Joshua said, do not be used by the 24 hours of the day. In other words, do not be a slave to the idea of separate existence outside of time. When we create 24 segments of what we call a day and a separate existence that needs to function in these segments, we can very quickly become slaves of time and feel as if we are running out of it. We fluctuate between wanting to hold on to what feels good or good times, and wanting to speed through and discard what feels like rough times. As long as we don't realize time and being as one, time feels like an ally or a foe, depending on the circumstances, depending on likes and dislikes. 
or maybe mostly like a foe, because eventually it will kill us. There's no doubt about that. Time will kill you. Who dies is the question. John Steinbeck expressed this uh, issue very well when he wrote, Where does discontent start? You are warm enough, but you shiver. You are fed, yet you experience hunger. You have been loved, but your yearning wanders in new fields. And to prod all this, there is time. The bastard time. Very well put. So to not be used by the 24 hours of the day, as Joshua says, would mean to merge and ride the continuum rather than create an idea of a separate entity which is moving within it. And back to Dogen's Uji. Time has the virtue of continuity. It continuously flows from the today that we are talking about to a tomorrow, from a today to a yesterday, from a yesterday to a today. It flows from a today to today and from a tomorrow to tomorrow. Because continual, continuous flow is a function of time. This is not philosophical mind gymnastics. So please don't hear it that way. Because continual, continuous, continuous flow is a function of time. Past and present times do not pile atop each other, nor do they form an accumulative line. Completely opposite of what the way we think. We are upside down. And this is right side up. Time does not accumulate. Conceptually it does, but in reality it does not. And circumstances do not accumulate. So next time we say, I've had enough of it, we have to look at it again. Enough of what? How is it possible? What is piling on top of what? I have too much going on. I don't have time for practice. Look again. Look at how tormenting that sentence can be for us. Because we say it and we believe it. We believe that there is a container that is getting filled up by life. And we believe that we have to accomplish something within a specific amount of time. Of course, we function this way. But it's very important that we don't let the way we function trap us or that we don't think that this is who we are when identify with that. And so in moments of feeling stuck, we need to remind ourselves that we are nothing but a continuum that has no fixed position, has no beginning and no end. How do we do that when we get pulled into habitual way of thinking and when we fall into a familiar pattern of behavior and thinking? 
Where do you place your attention? Where do you place your mind? Is the question. A 17th century Japanese Zen master named Takuan Soho wrote letters to his friend, the famous sword master Musashi. In one of his letters, he addressed this issue of fixating the mind in relation to a combat situation. But the principle he brings up is relevant to all aspects of life and all of us, whether you have interest in martial arts or not. He called it where one puts the mind. And he said, if one puts his mind in the action of his opponent's body, his mind will be taken by the action of his opponent's body. If he puts his mind in his opponent's soul, his mind will be taken by that soul. If he puts his mind in, thoughts of his, in the thoughts of his opponent's intention to strike him, his mind will be taken by thoughts of his opponent's intention to strike him. If he puts his mind in his own soul, his mind will be taken by his own soul. If he puts his mind in his own intention of not being struck, his mind will be taken by his intention of not being struck. If he puts his mind in the other man's stance, his mind will be taken by the other person's stance. What this means is that there is no place to put the mind. A certain person once said, no matter where I put my mind, my intentions are held in check in the place where my mind goes, and I lose to my opponent. Because of that, I place my mind just below my navel. And do not let it wander. Thus I am able to change. Thus I am able to change according to the actions of my opponent. Thus I am able to not be fixed or to not fixate. Thus I am flow. Nothing but interesting how how relevant that is you know we, we these days because we're unable to practice aikido uh, with contact we practice a lot of weapons aikido weapons which involve a wooden staff and a wooden sword and the other day i was working with with a student and the the there was contact between the staffs between our staffs and in that contact i immediately felt the student's shoulder being tight. It was clear, and I knew exactly at that moment it was the right shoulder. It was easy to see how, at that moment, that particular student revealed his center, revealed himself completely, and gave himself completely, meaning it was done at that moment, because everything was fixated on the shoulder. It was very clear, actually, because when we open up, those messages come. We are, and everything is being revealed. And when the mind is not fixated on anything, we don't reveal our centers, our center when it comes to a combat situation, for example. But it's the same with everyday life. When we don't put our mind in the big mind, that is, in the thoughts, whatever the thoughts are saying, then those thoughts don't trap us. They don't have the ability to trap us. But when the mind goes there, when we become obsessive about 
a way of being, a way of thinking, or a thought, who we are, who we're not, that becomes a trap. And we step out, or there is a sense of stepping out of the continuum. Being within, or being as the continuum, there is no place to put the mind. And the mind is always nowhere. Which means the mind is everywhere, at all times. So to fix at the mind is to step out of the continuum Dogen speaks of and engage in creating or fortifying a story out of bits and pieces of what we encounter. But through the practice of awareness, we may have a chance to intercept this automatic process, remain in the flow, as the flow and appreciate life as it comes without seeing it from a fixed position and of course without taking any of it personally. Master Zhijiao said once, don't be a companion of mind. When mindless, the mind is naturally at rest. When mindless, which is what we practice, Mindlessness. Back to the Quran. Lushan asked, when arising and vanishing go on unceasingly, what then? And this is the same as asking, when the continuum continues endlessly, then what? Obviously, it sounds quite ridiculous because when the continuum continues endlessly, there's nobody there to stop and ask questions. There's nobody there that will ponder about anything. And Yanta immediately shouted and said, Whose arising and vanishing is it? And the footnote says, If you know, it's not an adversary. If you know, if you understand, if you experience that you are nothing but time, how can time be an adversary? How can time threaten itself. How can impermanence threaten impermanence? Is there really someone there outside of time and space? Is there someone outside of the eternal and ceaseless continuum? That's where the error lies. We think there is. And if we think, or as long as we think there is, there is. In the commentary it says, when Bodhidharma came from the West, directly pointing to the mind so everyone could see its true nature and attain Buddhahood, was he teaching you to be bandits escorting a thief? To recognize the servant as the master? You know, when we are told to watch our thoughts and learn to be the witnessing presence in meditation, it is very easy to fall into the trap thinking that the witnessing presence is the real version of me and the arising and vanishing thoughts are the false version of me. But this would be just replacing one falsehood for another. And again, it doesn't matter what we grasp 
on to, what we hold on to, being something or nothing, being the witness or being the arising and vanishing thoughts. Ananda once said to the Buddha, I'm using the mind to investigate and seek. Therefore, that which seeks I take to be the mind. The Buddha looked at him and said, Ananda, this is an empty conception of form sense data before you. It confuses your real nature. It is due to your having recognized a thief as your son, losing your fundamental constant, thus you experience transmigration, thus you suffer. Thus we suffer. When we realize the false and enter a gapless reality, a gapless reality, there is nothing that is not the truth. And it's like magic, as the introduction says. One touch of the elixir of life turns iron into gold. One word of the ultimate principle transforms the old and ordinary person into a sage. If you know that gold and iron are not two, that ordinary and sage are fundamentally the same, then after all, you'll have no use for it. Of course you'll have no use for it. What will you do with it? Well, more than that, after all, you'll have no use for you. That is where freedom lies, to realize that I have no use for me. The verse, severing all the entangling vines, opening up a fox lair. This is basically saying, as long as there is a gap, there is someone who is entangled. There is someone who resides in the fox lair. A leopard covers itself with fog to change its spots. A dragon rides the thunder to change its bones. The footnote says, especially changing the shell of his body especially constantly changing the shell of the body. And this is alluding to our own journey from delusion to realization, which requires a radical disintegration of our cherished assumption about who we are. The dissolving of our assumption naturally leads to the transformation at the core, at the bones, changing the bones or not knowing the structure. And this transformation does not require letting go of thoughts and concepts. It is also only asking us to that we look at the one who is grasping them for dear life. Who? Who's arising and vanishing is it? Who is grasping? Who wants to let go? Who thinks? that this is something to be let go of. So we have to realize on our own that there is no one there. And then it says, Bah! Arising and vanishing in profusion. What is it? 
the entire koan, the entire teisho, could be summed up with ba. Enough. No more. No more because it's so precious. So right now, no more. Only right now. We think there is three months of ango. Wow, that's exhausting. It is exhausting to think about it. But there is no three months of ango. And when do we think that three months of ango will be nothing but this moment? Three months of ango definitely feel impossible to penetrate. But what about this? What about this? Can we work with this? Can we do what we plan to commit to in today's Ango Entry Ceremony? Can we focus on doing it just now, just today? Just today. Somebody who took Jukai a while ago with us but when he was pondering the taking Jukai or not, he, he expressed how challenging it feels for him to commit for life. He said, well, I can do something for a short period of time, but I don't know about the rest of my life. And I said to him, what is the rest of your life? Isn't this this moment? Isn't that the rest of your life? Is, is it not true that anything else other than this is imagining? Imagining that there is something else is stepping out of this. So when we take Jukai, when we enter Ango, or begin Zazenkai or Sishin, it's never more than this. This may be painful. Right now, we may experience pain. But it's much easier to work with this than think about how much time is there still to go. The pain grows significantly. The challenges become much more challenging when there is another three days, five days, five years, three months. What if there is no such thing outside of this moment? What if this moment is 10,000 years? Then what? So, entering the Ango today, are we willing to open up, willing to open up to the possibility that we are nothing but the unknown we are fearful of? Is it possible that we are nothing but the change we have a strong aversion to? Work with that for a little bit. Work with that, moment by moment, step by step. Thank you.